0: Well, today is the final message in our series called In the Beginning, going through Genesis chapter 1 through 11. So we're going to finish all the way through chapter 11 today. Uh, Last week's sermon, we learned about Noah's ark and the flood. Uh, We learned and were reminded that just as Noah and his family were saved through judgment, through the ark, that we, all those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, are saved through judgment in our ark of safety Remember, our ark of safety is Jesus Christ. Now, did you notice that there was part of the narrative that I never mentioned last week? Part of the Noah's ark and the flood narrative that's generally found on every children's painting or picture with Noah's ark. Do you know what it is? The rainbow. The rainbow. We never talked about the rainbow last week. And you might be thinking, Pastor Andy, how could you forget the rainbow? Which I say precisely. How could you forget the rainbow? And, and what we're going to see here today uh, that not forgetting the rainbow is the whole point. Today we're going to see that God doesn't forget that rainbow. Doesn't forget what that means in his covenant, his promise that it symbolizes. Okay? Because when God makes promises, what does he do? He keeps them. God keeps his promises promises. So we're going to actually start back in Genesis 8 today, verse 20, as we begin to look through this uh, final portion of the beginning section of the book of Genesis. We're going to first look at the promises of God that are made to Noah and to man. So right after getting off the ark, this is chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. It says, "...then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar." shall not cease. So two promises here in this passage. Number one, God says, I will never again curse the ground. Think back to Cain and the curse that God gives after Cain murders Abel. And he says, secondly, I will never again strike down every living creature. And this promise he makes directly to Noah, and it's for all of us and every living creature. Now for more of this, look forward to chapter 9, starting in verse 8. This is still God giving promises. Uh, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So everybody's covered. (laughs) I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant. It's the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. So is that us? That's still us. I have set my bow in the cloud. There's a rainbow. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. Okay, so just to make sure that we denote there, it says all. Are there floods today? Does that mean that God's forgotten his promise? He's not going to do it like he did this ever again. Okay? Uh, And it says in the rest of that verse verse 15 the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh verse 16 when the bow is in the clouds I will see it and remember The everlasting covenant between god and every living creature of all flesh that is on uh, the earth god said to noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me And all flesh that is on the earth So we have these promises of god And we also have a sign of of that promise. That sign functions to remind us, but then he also promises that sign is going to function to remind him. Something about God and his omniscience, knowing everything, seeing everything. Is there only ever one rainbow at a time that just kind of goes over the whole earth? Where do you see rainbows? (laughs) Are there some that are over Mount Pleasant from time to time? And there might be another one that's uh, occasionally over Detroit? Or even Toledo? Or all over the earth, right? God knows every single one of them. He knows the hairs of our head, and he knows every rainbow. And it says that he actively remembers his covenant every time he sees that. And that's pretty cool, isn't it? So we also see in this passage some commands from God. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. We're going to read verse 1, and we're going to skip down to verse 7. These are God's commands. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful And multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So, two commands there Be fruitful and multiply. We've heard this a couple times before in the first 11 chapters. And secondly, fill the earth, meaning disperse, spread out. These are the commands that God gives. Now, God gives commands, and God also gives provisions to obey his commands. It's pretty sweet. Number three here today is God's provision for the success of man. Verse 2 of chapter 9. First, we're going to look at food and safety. Okay, verse 2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Now, if you were Noah or one of the sons or one of their wives, and you were getting off the ark, and all those animals were getting off the ark, what might you be prone to do when the lions hop off? (laughs) There might be some some fear there, right? God says, no, you don't have to fear them. I'm putting a fear on them of you. They're not going to come after you. So a provision of safety there. And then not only that, it says in the rest of verse 2, into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So here, man becomes an omnivore. Okay, and it's also uh, potentially necessary. They're just getting off of the ark. Uh, The earth has just finished drying up from the worldwide flood. They haven't started farming yet. Remember? So as they get off the ark, remember there were, of the clean animals, they were to take seven pairs So there are 14 of them. Two, to keep their kind alive through procreation. Some for a sacrifice, right? God smelled the aroma from the altar. And then maybe some for dinner. Yeah. They needed these things, and they needed to have them. uh, As they moved forward, God provided for them to keep man alive and to allow him to thrive and to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to spread all over the earth. God made provision for man to obey his commands. The second provision is in verse 5 and 6. We touched on this last week a little bit, and this is capital punishment. Verse 5. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And here it is, kind of in poetic form. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So to use the command, thou shalt not kill, to say that the death penalty is unbiblical, what does this say? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by whom? By man shall his blood be shed. So God gives um, a provision here for authority to convict and find guilty and to Execute this Sentence now, how is this different? Think back to murders that we've already read about in Genesis 1 through 11. We think of Cain Was there such a thing as capital punishment that was known before Cain killed Abel? No, only that if you do well will not your countenance be lifted and Cain chose to disobey God and to disagree with God and to go after and let sin crouch at the door and attack him and have victory and then there was consequence, but the consequence wasn't even this, was it? It wasn't capital punishment. And then later on with uh, Lamech. Remember, Lamech took two wives, and he killed somebody who was uh, coming after him. And he decided for his own sentence, as if you could do that, right? Decided for his own sentence that the promise that God gave Cain is seven times as much for me. Which, by the way, God said, I'm going to protect you. God showed mercy to Cain on this earth and said, nobody can touch you. Lamech decided, oh, well, whatever God did for Cain, I get more. Just kind of evidencing and showcasing the pride of man and specifically of his heart. No more of that. You see that? No more. Uh, now God gives provision and says ahead of time, this is how it is. And again, if you think about it, how many people are there on the face of the earth when this is said? There's eight. Eight. And if one of them is a murderer, there's now seven. And if they give the consequence that God ordains here, now there's six. This is bad. So does God give this provision in order to say, yeah, let's get people, let's, let's fry them? Is that the attitude here? No. This is a provision to prevent. This is something that's there to deter that kind of a crime. Uh, God has made promises, and now he's set man up for success. So you'd think, after all of this is said and done, and all of this is uh, put in place, and man is where he is, and he's been given God's uh, great blessing and God's command and provision for his success, that it's all good from here, right? And of course the answer is, yeah, wrong, wrong. Let's see man's response. First in chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. This is Noah and his sons. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It says parenthetically here, Ham was the father of Canaan. Some foreshadowing. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. might say dot, 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 eventually. We're not there yet. Verse 20, Noah began, so Genesis, the book of beginnings, Noah began to be a man of the soil. And if you remember, the word in Hebrew for the ground, for the dirt, for the soil is Adamah, which Adam was named because he was taken from the, from the dirt, from the soil, okay? We're going to see in this, in this passage here, we have, in a sense, like a new creation and fall account. We had beginnings, We have uh, Noah being of the Adama. Uh, We have here now he's going to be planting a vineyard. There's some fruit. And he consumes of it. It says in verse 21 he drank of the wine and became drunk. So Noah's sin isn't just taking fruit because all things were given for them to eat. There is no tree of knowledge of good and evil. But he drinks it sinfully, carnally, and he gets drunk. And it says, then, he lay uncovered. And the way that verb is written there, it means that he uncovered himself. It wasn't that he got drunk and somebody messed around and took his clothes. He was drunk and he uncovered himself in his tent. Verse 22, and Ham, remember the father of Canaan, which keeps reminding us of that, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So this is Ham's sin. And there's been much speculation for everything that could have transpired here, because this is all it pretty much tells us here and a little bit here going forward. But man, this curse that we're about to read, if you remember and have read through this before, Noah's cursing of Ham is pretty intense. And so people think, well, man, with that kind of a response, he must have done something fiercely bad, seriously bad. And so they have speculated everything. If you read through commentaries and stuff, they've speculated everything from castration to some sort of a sexual sin. They've gone to those extremes and to those ideas. However, however, we don't need to make up ideas to try to justify Noah's cursing later on. Uh, the Bible says what he did. Okay, The sin is clearly written here. What did he do? He mocked his father. He dishonored his father. That is the fifth commandment. And he then entices... And tries to tempt his brothers to do the same. That's a grievous sin. Uh, by the way, remember this is a parallel of the, of the garden in Genesis three. Who is Ham being compared to? Who was the enticer? Yeah, Satan. That's what's going on here. Verse 23: then Shem and Japheth took a garment and they laid it on both their shoulders. And they walked backward. So picture this. These two brothers with the garment on their shoulders, they walked backward, and they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Shem and Japheth, they clothe and cover their father's nakedness. Go back to Genesis three. Satan tempts Adam and Eve. They eat of the fruit. They reject God, right? And they want to be like God themselves, just as Satan wanted to do. And when they eat of the fruit and they sin against God, what was exposed? Their nakedness. They saw that they were naked. And then what did God do after all of that? He covered them. So here again, Noah's drunkenness, he uncovers himself. Ham exposes his nakedness, and then then the two other brothers come and they cover his nakedness. When Noah awoke, just a little idea as to how drunk he was, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed, or cursed be Canaan. Whom? Who did this? Ham. Ham. But he says, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After this second fall, if you will, comes, just like in the first fall, curse. And these blessings and cursings, they're not prophecies, okay? Noah can't say, uh, Cursed be Canaan, blessed be Shem, may God enlarge Japheth, and then, bing, it happens. This is Noah, in a sense, praying to the Lord, invoking the Lord and and requesting this, desiring this. And then, think about the, the implication of cursing Canaan. Who is Canaan? Who is his father? This is why the text told us this twice. Ham is his father. Who was Ham's father? Noah. So, in a sense, we have here this father son connection that was broken. And now, what has Noah done? He's gone and broken that next generation's connection. See the significance of that and what he's getting at in that curse and requesting that from the Lord? Is that the right thing for Noah to do? (laughs) It's a fair question. We have to be careful of this. Sometimes we look at Bible stories and we look at Bible characters, and by the way, that terminology kind of demeans them, right? A Bible character. If you make it in the history book, you won't want people to call you a character. You're a person, you're a human being, right? So was Noah, and so is Noah. And the Bible is very honest. There is no lie. There is no admixture of error in the Scripture. So it tells us all the good and it tells us all the bad. Fathers, if your son were to sin against you, would it be right and good for you to curse your grandson? Wouldn't suggest it And yet noah does this and the text just moves right along Doesn't it? So we have a picture here What is man like? What is man's response in the context of god? giving these commands giving these promises and giving these provisions Mankind is still sinful. Mankind is still messed up. Sidebar, let's look on to chapter 10 here. I'm not going to read a whole lot of this. Um, Chapter 10, we see with this genealogy here, the being fruitful and the multiplying and the spreading out all all over the earth, it's happening. So remember the question earlier, so everything is good to go from here, right? Right? And the answer, obviously, was wrong. We already saw that in this first evidence of man's response. Uh, But chapter 10 gives us everything coming to fruition. Chapter 11 is going to show us how it got there, and it wasn't man's victory. Surprise, surprise, right? First, though, two items, two men to take note of uh, for the things that we discussed today in chapter 10. First, we're going to look at chapter 10, verses 15 through 19, because we're learning more about Canaan and who this guy is. Okay, and see as we read these verses, if you recognize some of these names of peoples, people groups, nations, and their locations. So, chapter ten, verse fifteen: Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. That's a lot of ites, right? Afterward the clans of the Canaanites, they're all categorized as Canaanites, dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites, here's some more names, extended from Sidon to the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, and then Adma and Zeboi, Zeboiim, as far as Laisha Okay? Uh, when... Are the Israelites hearing this information? Do you remember? Do they have this before or after Egypt? The answer is after. Okay. Who was the writer of Genesis? Who was the human hand? It was Moses. This is the time of the Exodus. Where are the Israelites about to go? To the promised land, who is currently inhabited by the Canaanites. Why did God make sure to put this in the story? These people, remember the Israelites were learning in the book of Genesis who he is and who they were and also who they're not. And they're not Canaanites. And so it's important that they would understand these things that were happening in the history of these peoples. And as we go through Genesis later on, we're going to see that God says, it wasn't, by the way, the curse of Noah that was the reason the Israelites were to go conquer the Canaanites. It was judgment for their own sin. Their sin, the Canaanites' sin. Does that make sense? So interesting things there. And the Israelites were not to—they re- were to remain separate. They were not to combine themselves as a people, as a nation, with the Canaanites. Now, secondly, in this chapter, we want to make sure that we know who this other character is, this other real person who existed because of what he's about to do and what he's going to build. This person is Nimrod. Okay? What is a Nimrod? When you call somebody a Nimrod, what are you calling them? An idiot. That's right. You know where that came from? Nimrod was not named Nimrod because he was an idiot. We're going to see, in fact, he was the opposite of that. So get this. This is America for you, okay? The first famous character to call somebody a Nimrod was uh, a person, not a person, actually a bunny. His name is Bugs. Bugs Bunny. Who did he call Nimrod? Trivia question. Elmer Fudd. Okay? If you hearken back to your viewing of Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd, Elmer Fudd was if you don't know children, I'll help you out here. Elmer Fudd liked to go hunting, and it was wabbit season, right? And he would go after Bugs Bunny, and Bugs Bunny would do all kinds of things to prevent Elmer Fudd from getting the kill. And when Elmer Fudd did the dumbest things, Bugs Bunny would say, You, Nimrod. That's when he would say it. And so it got taken to mean that a Nimrod is an idiot. But that's not why Bugs Bunny said it. Nobody got the joke. That was one thing in Bugs Bunny. Nobody got the joke because Bugs Bunny was never meant to be intelligent humor, right? It was supposed to be dumb. But that is what he was saying. And now, As we read this text, you'll see it, okay? So if we chuckle in a time we shouldn't, that's probably because of this story, okay? But that's all right. Verse 6 of chapter 10. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt. Does that sound familiar? Cush, Egypt. In other translations, it might say Mitzrayim there instead of Egypt. That's just the Hebrew word for Egypt. That's why it says Egypt in the ESV. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka. The sons of Ramah, Sheba and in, Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, a warrior. He was a mighty hunter. Nimrod was a mighty hunter. That's why Bugs called Elmer Fudd Nimrod, okay? Because he wasn't a mighty hunter. So Nimrod, a mighty man, a mighty warrior, and a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said... And it was said amongst the peoples of the earth at that time, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And then it says this, the beginnings of his kingdom. Nimrod is a mighty warrior, a mighty hunter, and a king and emperor. It was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And then Erech, and then uh, Akkad or Akkad. Think of the, the name the Akkadians. You might have heard of them in history. And Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Are stories flooding back in your mind as you read these names and these places? Uh, Rehobothir, ir and Resin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. So Nimrod, the mighty warrior, the mighty hunter, a killer of men and animals alike, also becomes a mighty king, a mighty emperor, and he builds up his kingdom in what would be modern-day northern and southern Iraq. Or, if you're thinking about history, the areas that would be different points of the Babylonian and the Assyrian empires. That's where Nimrod reigned. Okay, so now let's look at the events and the effort of man that occurred under his watch. We're going to be in chapter 11. And remember, we've looked so far today at God's promises, God's commands, God's provision for man. And now we're looking at man's response. The first one we saw was Noah and his sons, and now we're going to look at Nimrod and the rest of mankind. Chapter 11 verse 1 Now the whole earth had one language and the same words And as people migrated from the east or eastward they found a plain in the land of Shinar and that means the land between two rivers those two rivers being the Tigris and the Euphrates So do you see on the map maybe Iraq in that area And they settled there And they said to one another Come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, think about this. Noah, it was clear in the passage with Noah that he had wood and he had pitch in order to build something, which was an ark, to save him from the judgment of the Lord. Now, the rest of mankind, a couple generations later, are using two other materials, and it specifies for us. Like why? Why else would it? It specifies for us brick and the mortar for them to build something to try to escape the judgment of the Lord. You see what's happening? Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower, not just a tower, but a city and a tower, with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So, just a few generations, right after a worldwide flood, man wants to build a giant tower high up into the sky. Hmm. That sounds fishy, doesn't it? And they want to avoid God's command. It's like they're thinking ahead. And they want to make a name for themselves. There's two possible uh, thoughts behind what in the world that means, okay? First of all, we have to ask, were they intentionally trying to create a God to give them different directions? The reason why we might think that is because this tower and the towers that we have in history that were built throughout the Middle East that were called ziggurats. Not pyramids, but more like going up like this kind of thing. Ziggurats, that, there were these towers, and the way those functioned, the temple area where the worship and the people would commune together would be on the bottom layer, or the bottom floor, if you will. At the very, very top, they would build a house for the god. Or a house for the gods, for them to come up and down. And it was up in the heavens, and the gods could make decrees from the heavens. Of course, I don't know who was hearing these decrees or writing them down as if they were from that god that didn't exist, but that was the general idea. Does that make sense? So if you don't like what God says, and if you don't want to do what he says, maybe we can build a tower and put a house at the top for some other god to come down and tell us to do something else that we just by chance want to do. That's one possibility. The other is this, and I think it is even possibly more this. Think of it this way. What if they said, if we could speak from the heavens, what if we could go up there and we could speak? If we were in the heavens and we spoke, perhaps there'd be some divine power behind that. And then we could contradict what God says and we can do what we want. Does that make sense? It makes sense, but does it make sense? No. Both of those things sound ridiculous, don't they? Both of those things sound ridiculous. And God says as much because he says in verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Uh, Visualize here. These people are building a tower to go up into the heavens so they can summon or even communicate their own divinity and their own divine decrees. It's going to be so amazing and so big, and we're going to build a name for ourselves. And God says, I'm going to go down. In all of their attempts to build up, God still had to come down. And look at what the children of man are doing. Look what the children are, are busy about down there on the earth. He communicates it that way. It says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is the only, it's only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And that statement taken by itself, that one verse, you'd think, well, man can't do anything. Was God saying that man could do anything as if they could thwart him? And the answer is no, no. He didn't, he didn't change from thinking, I better go down and see what's happening to, oh, they're going to they're co- conquer me. That's not it. Okay? This was one people, one government, no opposition. Uh, when Hitler was busy doing what he was doing, what stopped him? Other nations. Right? Other nations. One world governments are a bad idea. I shouldn't say it that way. A, one world government, because there's not more than one. We can't make governments plural. That's a bad idea. Why? Because then man will be able to do whatever comes to his mind to do because there will be no opposition. And God says, no, it's better that there be nations. It's better for us, it's better for mankind to uh, put a a limit to our wickedness that we can amass. It's better to have multiple nations That's what god says here And so in verse 7 he says just like they set up in verse 3 come let us do this god says Come let us there's some idea of the trinity there too Come let us go down and they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech And so this is how the lord dispersed them So how did chapter 10 happen? That's how God dispersed them in the midst of their efforts to disobey. God dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. And they left off building the city. They had to quit. They couldn't finish. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused. Babel means confusion. He confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. Ironically or not, Babylon... Which is the name of the empire that came in the city that a lot of people attribute to because it's in the same area and it may have come from the same people and the same all that. Babylon means the gate of the gods. Remember the ziggurats? What were the gate of the gods? They built up that house at the top of the ziggurat. That's where the god could come up and down and hang out and give his decrees. So not much had changed. Man doesn't learn. Now we need to take a step back here, look at the big picture as we think about man and about God and his promises kept. And we move into the promises of God. But first, what have we learned again about man today? And not just in today's passage, but in all of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. At least three things. We know this. We are sinners. Man is sinful. And we are prone to go our own way which our own way is away from God, even in direct opposition to him. And therefore, we are in desperate need of grace. We are in desperate need of his intervention. God had to intervene, and then he had to intervene again, and then he had to intervene again to keep us from destroying ourselves. We need his grace and his intervention. Think about this. God created everything perfect, and then man sinned. And God gave instruction for worship and for reconciliation. And man killed and man sinned. God gave messengers and preachers and Enoch and Noah. And man continued to eat and drink and live life away from God's will. And they were oblivious to the coming judgment. Man sinned. God judged wickedness and saved only one family in the ark. And that family fell too. They sinned. And all that followed them, man sinned. God made provisions to secure the good and the growth of mankind. And man rejected God and tried to make a name for himself. Man sinned. Do you see the pattern? That pattern hasn't stopped. Now let's look at this from the other perspective. Man sinned, and then God promised victory over the serpent through the seed of the woman. Man sinned, and then God spared life and gave hope through repentance and obedience. Man sinned, and then God shortened lifespans. He decreased the surmounting wickedness of man, protecting us from ourselves. And then man sinned, and God spared mankind through the judgment in the ark, and promised to never destroy life on the earth in the same way again. And man sinned, and then God divided out and spread them out, again protecting them from their own selves. Do You see the pattern there? This is who our God is. He has a plan, and he is perfectly working and executing that plan. He will not fail. In spite of all that we might try to do to thwart his plan, he's going to win. God's plan will be perfectly executed. The final portion of chapter 11 teaches us this. It's another genealogy. And it takes us from Shem to Abram. Abraham. The father of the Jewish people. From all the mess that man kept making in these first 11 chapters in Genesis, this is the book of our beginnings. God makes for himself a people. In all of the mess, God makes for himself a people out of whom would come the Christ. God succeeds. Remember the seed of the woman who was promised after the fall? The seed of Abraham who was promised to him to be, uh, in all that seed, the nations of the earth would be blessed. The son of David who was promised to rule and reign forever. And that passage in Matthew says that son of David, the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God who was promised to take away our sin. Mankind, us, we, you and me, we make mistakes over and over again. We fall short. We sin. Do you believe that? Do we believe that about ourselves? Now our God has made promises and he keeps every one of his promises. Do you believe that about him? Israel could have read Genesis 1 through 11 and believed and then known that they could trust in God and we can do the same. So Christian, God has made promises to us. All our hope and trust has been placed in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And there is nothing now, Romans 8, that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. And why? Because our God made that promise. Not me, not you. That's a good thing. God made that promise. And God keeps his promises. Now, thinking through this is preaching the gospel to ourselves. God made a promise to us. He's gonna save us. He's gonna he's gonna cover our sin. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ That's done God said it's finished, right? And we think about our true condition and who we are and what we are and our great need We think about who he is and what he has done what he accomplished We think about why is my salvation secure And when we think about those things, what does it make us conclude about him? And how would it make our love for him continue to grow when we think about what he's done for us? And the more we think about these truths, the more we see his goodness and his faithfulness in it, our love and our appreciation, our respect and our reverence for our God will only grow. It will only grow. And the more we love him, the better for us and the joy that we can have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for teaching us in your word who you are. And we thank you for teaching us in your word who we are. Thank you for giving us on display in these first 11 chapters in Genesis your goodness, your holiness, your righteousness, and your steadfast love. How, how you meet our need. How you promised to us uh, what we needed for our greatest need of our our sin our separation from you god Thank you for the finished work of jesus christ on the cross And I pray that as we as a church Think about these truths And just continue to meditate on them and and lord we pray that you'd allow them to Take deep root in our hearts and our minds That our love for you would grow And god, we thank you that you are a good god so that the more we love you the better it would be for us Thank you, Lord, for all of these things. In Christ's name, amen.